I do hope this morning that your faith is just built this morning. If you're kind of on the border of faith, if you're kind of thinking about this whole Jesus thing, I hope maybe this pushes you over the edge. And if you've been a Jesus person for a long time, I hope this just enriches your love and affection for Jesus and your belief in him above all things. Let me set the stage for this passage in Acts chapter 5. And the way I want to do it is a little different than what I might normally do. What I want you to do is just pause for a second and look around you. Just look around. Look at the people around you. Okay? I just want you to soak that in for a second. Um, Because the passage this morning, although it took place many, many years ago, what it actually does is it looks forward and it imagines a time like right now. Gamaliel's basically, the guy we're going to look at this morning, Gamaliel, a Jewish teacher, he's basically going to ask the question, what's going to become of this Jesus thing? And what does that tell us about Jesus and more importantly about God? And so he couldn't have imagined this 2,000 years later, you and I sitting in this room right now, but we know something Gamaliel doesn't. All right, so now come back with me to Acts chapter 5. This is the very beginning of the church 2,000 years ago. It hasn't lasted all of these centuries and millennia. It's at its very beginnings. You have these apostles. Those are the leaders in the early church. The Jewish leaders of the time, the Sanhedrin and others, are trying to get the apostles to stop preaching about Jesus Christ, who they just had a hand in killing. But they won't stop. They keep preaching about Jesus. They're arrested twice. And they keep preaching about Jesus. The Sanhedrin comes to him and they said, I thought we told you to stop. And they said, yeah, we're going to keep it up. All right, so come with me here then to Acts 5, starting at verse 33. When they heard this, the Jewish leaders, they were furious when they heard the defiance of these early Christian apostles. They were furious and they wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, now this is a Jewish teacher, His most famous student, anybody know? The Apostle Paul, Saul at the time, was Gamaliel's student once. But a Pharisee, he's a Jewish teacher named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men, the apostles, be put outside for a little while so they can have a private conversation among the leaders. And then he addressed the Sanhedrin. He said this, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theudas appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. Well, he was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in a revolt. He too was killed, and his followers were scattered. Therefore, pay attention to this. In this present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it's from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them, so they called the apostles in, and they had them flogged. And then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. Flog means to whip somebody repeatedly. And the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. I'm going to come back to that line in a few weeks. 
Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped, even though they had been told to, teaching and proclaiming the good news of, that Jesus is the Messiah. I had you look around for a second at the start of this sermon, and what you're looking around and what you're observing is the lasting influence of Jesus in our time, 2,000 years after these words that Gamaliel said. But it's not just here at church that you would see the lasting influence of Jesus. If you were to look in our culture at institution after institution, idea after idea, commitment after commitment of people in our world, what you would see if you look deeply is that embedded within all of them or foundational between so many of them is the influence of Jesus Christ. Uh, the great scholar Garslav Pelican, he said that if you had some kind of super magnet that could pull from the earth every scrap of metal bearing the name of Jesus, that there would not be much left. So, I had a conversation with my neighbor yesterday. We've got a tree that's half on my property, half on hers, needs some work done on the tree. And she's been there a long time. She's 90 years old. And she told me 50 years ago, there was a metal stake right by that little tree. And she says, now it's somewhere inside of it. And I think that's, that's something along the lines of what Pelican is, says, is saying, like, there are certainly institutions like the church where we see that Jesus is foundational, but Jesus is enveloped or foundational to so many things, and that if we were to cut them apart, we would actually see his influence there on the inside. Or if we were able to pull out that stake with a big magnet, we would see it. Let me give you just a couple of examples. Care and concern for children. In the time of Jesus, before the time of Jesus, and in the world in which Jesus lived, children were not considered people. They weren't. That's partly because of high infant mortality rates. It's partly because there was cultural ideas about what makes for a desirable child and what makes for an undesirable child. So many children were what's called exposed. That means left to die. Children did not matter. A secular scholar wrote this book, okay? The book is titled, When Children Became People the birth of childhood in early Christianity. What she notes is before the teachings of Jesus and before the work of the Jesus people to save and preserve every child made in the image of God, the world did not have a concept that children mattered. Think about that. Well, let me give you another example, a love for learning. Did you know that universities, where universities started, were monasteries? Monasteries were places where spiritual people went to pray and to study, study about Jesus. Out of that, the first universities were built. And you probably know that the greatest universities in Europe and in America started hundreds of years ago. Why? To train preachers. That was their purpose. They were Christian in their beginnings. Uh, in, the, in the brand new American colonies, one of the first public laws that was made in the new colonies was called the Old Deluder Satan Act the Old Deluder Satan Act. It was a law instituting or mandating public education, taxation for public education. The principle was God wants every one of his children educated. Satan wants them ignorant. The Old Deluder Satan Act. Modern education, look around. It comes from Jesus and Jesus' people. Well, let me give you another example. Hospitals, hospitals, modern medicine. Scholars say, historians say, you can trace the advent of hospitals to early Christians who stayed in Rome to care for those who were suffering from the plague when everybody else was leaving. 
That's the advent of modern medical care. Before that, you didn't have it. You were taken care of by your family, if at all, or left to die. Hospitals owe their origins to Jesus. That's why you have hospitals like Baptist and Methodist, right? We need a Church of Christ hospital out there, okay? Okay, right, that you... Those institutions owe as their beginning the influence of Jesus and Jesus' people. So, in 2012, there was a presidential election. You'll remember this. It was between Obama and Romney. A guy named John Ortberg wrote this about the lasting influence of Jesus all these years later in institutions we see all around us. And he said this, The one predictable element of this fall's U.S. presidential campaign is that it will be called the most important election of our time as the one before it was called, and as the next one will be too. He goes on. Meanwhile, the unpredictable influence, the unpredictable influence of an unelected carpenter continues to endure and spread across the world. Think about that. The endurance of the influence of Jesus through the Jesus people is something Gamaliel could not have imagined. But he was wondering, he was wondering if this Jesus thing survived, what would that mean about Jesus? What would that mean about these Jesus people? And above all, what would that mean about God if this thing endured? That's his question. And the reason he's thinking about this is because to Gamaliel's credit, he's a man of God. He's a guy like you and me who's going about his life trying to pay attention to what God is doing in the world. And so let me me kind of set set the stage here. The people of Jesus are given this instruction at the beginning of Acts. This is the instruction. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So this is the instruction and the promise that catapults all of Acts. So the church has this mission, it's to go and share the news of Jesus everywhere they go. But what we're seeing happen with the apostles is that every time they go and share the news of Jesus, they're experiencing opposition. They're being arrested, they're being persecuted, they're being thrown in jail and threatened with death. By Acts chapter seven, we're gonna have our first Christian martyr, Stephen. So as they pursue this mission of Jesus, they're experiencing opposition. And Gamaliel's part of that opposition. And Gamaliel thinks, okay, if this thing is a nail and you hammer it, it'll sink. And so it's being struck by this hammer again and again and again. But the weirdest thing is happening. This nail is not budging. In fact, the nail is growing, you might say. Christianity continues to expand, and Gamaliel's thinking, what's going on here? Right? Nails are supposed to sink when they get hammered. Okay. And in Acts 5, the immediate context, look, at, look with me at just a couple verses here. Verses 17 to 20, the apostles are busted out of jail by an angel. Gamaliel's probably struggling to figure out what that means. Verses 22 to 26, these apostles who've been told to stop preaching in the name of Jesus keep doing it, publicly humiliating the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders. So he sees that. 
And then in verses 27 to 33, the apostles, as they appear before the Sanhedrin, are filled with a spirit so powerful that everyone notes how bold they are, and he sees this. So in his experience, this is not how most nails act. Most of them just sink. And so he's asking himself, is this a human thing? Or is this another kind of thing? Is this a God thing? Because if this Jesus thing and these Jesus people have God behind them, then we don't want to be on the wrong side. That's what he's thinking. And to his credit, he's thinking that because he's a Bible man. He's thinking about all these stories from the Old Testament of people who got on the wrong side of God. And what happens to them? It doesn't go well. I mean, he's thinking about Pharaoh. Remember what happens to Pharaoh? God's like, let my people go. And he says, "Mm, I don't know about that. And God sends 10 plagues and destroys Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. And Gamaliel's looking at the Jewish leaders and he's like, guys, remember, if we get this wrong, we'll be on God's bad side. And that's not where we want to be. So this is what he says. Look again with, it, with me at it. He says this. This is what I want to focus on. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it'll fail. But if it's from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourself fighting against God. Okay, I tried to come up with a way to illustrate it. I think it would look something like this. This is what's called the Gamaliel Principle. Gamaliel's principle is, you, let's, I think we've got this drawn out here. Wait and see. Give it a little time. And if over the course of time, a thing endures or grows or expands over the course of time, if it continues to live, then it's from God. If it doesn't, if it goes down, if it crashes and burns, if it dies, it's not from God. All right, that's the the Gamaliel principle. Now, as you're looking at that, here's what I want to ask. Is Gamaliel right? Yes. Is he right? Because, I mean, it's it's worth pointing out, Gamaliel's not one of the apostles. He's in the Bible, but he's on the wrong team here, okay? So is he right? Is he getting this right? Is that true? Well, here's what I would say in answer to that question. Is Gamaliel right? Yes, but. Yes, but. And I wanna, what I want to do first is I want to talk about the second word there, the but. I'm way too mature to make any jokes about that. But I'm tempted. I'm not going to do it. I'm fighting the urge right now to make any jokes about focusing on the but. So we're going to do that for a second. Yes, but. Okay, what I, what I would say is, it, it is, if you look at that Gamaliel principle and you see the line going up and the line going down, it's tempting to a conflate, conflate endurance versus death with success, failure, comfort, difficulty, health, sickness, joy, suffering, 
or life and death in the short term. Basically, if a thing goes good, it's a God thing. If it hurts or goes bad, then it must not be. And Luke, who's writing Acts, the early apostles, really the whole of the Bible would say, no, you can't simplify it like that. It's really not that simple. I was reading a biography of Adoniram Judson. He's one of the greatest missionaries of the last several hundred years. He was a missionary in Burma at the time. And over his ministry of decades, he converted thousands. He planted churches, an incredible ministry over the course of that time. But for the first six years, he didn't convert a single person. He lost several children, and eventually his wife passed away too. And so if our calculus is that if a thing goes good, it's a God thing, and if it goes badly, it's not a God thing, then eventually we get it wrong. That's, that is not a faithful calculus. In fact, this very scene with Gamaliel and the apostles, do you remember how it ends? The apostles are drugged back in, and they are beaten and flocked. It didn't feel good. And so if they had left that meeting with the convinced right? That if a thing goes good, it's a God thing. If it hurts or goes bad, it's not. Then they would have lost their faith and you and I wouldn't be here today. That's the but. You can't oversimplify it. But let's go back to the yes here. But yes. I want to say this like I have it written, so I'm going to look at it. Yes. To the degree that the endurance of the church in this world over millennia to the degree that the endurance of the church in this world is a sign of our eternal and heavenly endurance, then yes, looking at the endurance of the influence of Christ in our world through Christ's people should lead us to believe without a shadow of a doubt that there is a God and he is behind this thing, that he's behind it. I was um, following this. I'm I'm sure you were following this too. Harvest Church, which is a sister church in town, a wonderful church, that several of their leaders were in a plane crash a couple of weeks ago. You know this. And I know one of them uh, personally, the one who survived. Don't know him well, but I've met him a couple times. Great man of God. And from all I've heard about the other men, they were terrific men of God. And I tuned in for the worship service the Sunday after the plane crash where four of those men were killed and one survived. And one of the ministers who got up to preach that day, he, he said it's been the hardest week of his life, and all of us can imagine that. Of course it would have been. But he also said this, and this is what struck me. He said, this has also been this church's finest moment. He said, I thought a lot about that. If our calculus equates good with God all the time, then the bad of losing those men shakes our faith to the core and we can't recover. If our calculus equates the endurance of God's people, despite and in the midst of overcoming an inexplicable suffering, okay, then we look at the regathered body of Christ that joined together that Sunday after the plane crash and say, God is surely with them because they have endured despite this opposition. You see what I'm saying? Okay. God told Isaiah, this is Isaiah 46, 11. He, this is what God said. He said, what I've said, that I will bring about. 
What I have planned, that I will do. And in the context here, what God has said is, he is forming a people together for himself in this world, starting with Israel and becoming the church through Jesus Christ. That he is forming a people to himself who he is going to preserve forever, and he will do it. And the evidence then, among all the other evidences for the work of God in the world, and there are many, one of the greatest evidences that you and I can see is looking around on Sunday morning and saying, yep, they're still here. God is doing what he said he was going to do. He's still with them, the endurance of the church. Now, <clears throat> I know that there are churches with a small C that have closed their doors. And that is a tragedy. It is a tragedy. But the church with a capital C has endured thousands of years now. If you connect that to the history of God's people in Israel, thousands more. It has endured and spread and grown to every corner of this world. And that, I'll be honest, is sometimes despite us, isn't it? Uh, I was reading this author about this. She said, perhaps the most notable truth in the history of Christianity then is the endurance of the church despite our many efforts, she said. I mean, how many of you have watched the Olympics and you watch a relay race in the Olympics and even at the highest level, has there been an Olympic relay at the highest level where someone did not drop the baton? It happens at the highest level, people who practice their whole lives for this. Now just think with me about all the generations that have made up the church over its 2000 year history. How many times that baton had to be handed off and you're telling me the baton was never dropped in all that time. This can't be a human thing. Martin Luther looked at that, the great reformer, and this is what he said. He said, if it were up to us, the church would perish before our very eyes and we together with it. But it is another who obviously perseveres both the church and us. And that word obviously is what grabs me there. What he's saying is, if you're struggling to believe, look around you that the people of God 2,000 years later are still together and thriving, right? Now, there are parts of the world in which Christianity is declining, and, and, and it would seem that in parts of America that's the case. Certainly in Europe, Christianity has declined a great deal. Now, in what we call the global south and in the far east, Christianity is exploding, Really, the center of Christianity has moved to places like Brazil okay. and China in some ways. So there are places in the world where Christianity is growing, but I know that it feels here that perhaps this movement, our faith, is diminishing. But it's here's what I would tell you about that. John Calvin, I don't agree with everything Calvin said, but Calvin said the church has always gone through seasons of decline and renewal. That's why the people of God continue to pray for revival because the church is something like a tree. Like it goes through these seasons where it looks like it's dead or on its last legs, but then it comes back vibrant and it blooms and it's got new fresh leaves. And what he says is there must be some kind of inner life or inner vitality in the church that keeps it coming back year after year, even when it seems like everything is against the church and it's declining or near death, it just comes back. He says there's some kind of inner life. And so what you and I have to ask ourselves is what is that inner life keeping us alive? 
And so I'll end with this. Gamaliel gives two examples. Two examples. He gives two examples of movements whose leaders died, were killed. And then the movement died shortly thereafter. And this is his whole principle. This is what he thinks. If the life of the leader is extinguished, the life of the movement will follow. It's inevitable. If the leader dies, the movement dies. And you and I are part of something that's still alive. And so how do we explain that if Gamaliel's right? Our leader is not dead. And that we still derive our power and energy and life from him. That is the only explanation, I believe, for how this thing you're sitting in this morning has endured what it has. So if your faith is struggling, if you're struggling to believe in God this morning, if you're struggling to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, that he is alive and active and that you can pray and he will intercede on your behalf, if you are struggling to know that you are not alone in this world, then look around you and believe. Look around you and believe. You're in the hands of a living God, part of a living church that will endure forever. The gates of hell won't stop this. Let me pray over you. God, thank you for your people this morning. Would you bless them? Would you build us up as your body? God, would you help us to endure for your sake and for your glory? I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.